Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Joseph DeLeo. He was the first director of meteorology at the cable TV Weather Channel. He has over 30 years experience in professional meteorology. He's a co-chief meteorologist along with Joe Bastardi at the new venture Weatherbell at weatherbell.com, which we're going to talk about today. He is also known for his papers on climate change, questioning and looking at the details and facts related to climate change, questioning global warming. He is a man who's into the details. He also owns and runs a very well-known blog called IceCap.us. A couple of years ago, we had him on our first show related to climate and That is where I became interested in a new perspective on climate, and it was Joe DeLeo's help, along with Dr. Tim Ball and another gentleman named Robert Felix, who helped me understand the facts about climate change. And he is here today because I'm very interested in talking about how weather affects industry and agriculture, and some of the other concerns that we need to be talking about with regard to weather. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Joe DeLeo to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. Thank you. Let's first talk about your new venture, WeatherBell, at weatherbell.com, and what you're doing there. Well, it's been a dream of Joe Bastardi and myself for many years that someday if uh, uh, the cards played out right that uh, we'd get to work together. We uh, went down parallel paths in our careers and both of us have had over 30 years experience in uh, in the field and uh, we think alike. We come up at the uh, weather and climate from the data as opposed to uh, theory and models. And uh, we, we try to learn from the data, learn from experience, very much uh, uh, data-driven, uh, empirical kind of approaches. And many, many times over the years, even before we knew each other, um, you know, always be very surprised, and I was part of a hedge fund, a partner in a hedge fund with another meteorologist. We discuss a pattern and reasons why we think that pattern was going to change and what effect it would have on energy or agriculture. And and uh, then we'd read Joe's um, blog, and he'd be talking about the same thing. And we said, is, is, he, is he listening in on our phone conversation here? How did he know that? Uh, but we, we, we tend to think a lot. We think a lot of on climate as well, um, we see because we look at data that uh, the data that suggests the the changes that we've experienced are real, natural, and cyclical, and predictable. And we we intend to use that in in our business. So, talk about what WeatherBell does. Well, we provide. Uh, information to four major constituents, uh, one being uh, just the weather hobbyists, the people that just like to talk about the weather and, and read other people's opinions. And they've been following Joe Bastardi uh, when he was with Accu and, and uh, AccuWeather. And uh, myself, 
when I was Dr. DuPont on IntelliCast, and we both produced blogs, weather blogs, and they were big fans uh, of those blogs, and they learned a lot about weather and climate from it. So we, they are among our first uh, clients on, on WeatherBell, and they come to our site, and he, Joe and I post at least one new blog every day talking about some aspect of, of the weather. One new blog or one new write-up? Uh, one new write-up. Okay. And uh, it may have to do with the uh, change in the weather pattern. It has to do with uh, what we expect for the hurricane season. Uh, in in some cases, the the, the drought in Texas, uh, uh, the problems they're having, and similar problems they're having in in uh, in France. My first blog post on Weather Bell was on May 11th. And I said, boy, we're in for a spring with lots of flooding and tornadoes. And one of Joe's early blogs did a similar thing. Uh, and, of course, um, that has certainly proven true. In April, we set a record for uh, any given month in history for a number of tornadoes and two major outbreaks. And one in May wasn't quite as active as April, but... Uh, it was deadly as well, uh, like April, and uh, over 500 deaths so far due to uh, tornadoes. And certainly the flooding has been a big issue all along the Ohio-Mississippi River and now the Missouri River. And uh, the flooding in, in uh, the lower Mississippi Valley has been uh, as uh, worse than any time since 1927, a very significant flood year. Is it a lot of work, or are you using a computer program to be able to deduce what the weather's going to be in different areas? Are there only certain areas that you focus on? How does it work? Well, we look at global patterns, and the factors that we look at have global implications, whether they be El Nino or La Nina, uh, the decadal oscillations in the Pacific and the Atlantic, the Pacific decadal oscillation, the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, these all have global effects, or at least hemispheric effects. And by knowing the, the states of those variables and the others that we look at, like the, the solar activity, the wind that blows at 10 to 12 miles over the tropical Pacific that oscillates back and forth from west to east every 13 months or so affects the, the way in which the oceans and, and the sun affect the patterns. Uh, we look at other factors, uh, the lunar uh, phase, um, and the, these factors in, in combination point toward certain years um, that were similar, and the, we use those years as guides for what the weather is likely to be, and, and this works quite well. It is said that there are, not in your circles, but in other research circles, that there are two kinds of weather. One is organic weather, which is the Earth doing what it's doing, which is cyclical and what you're describing. But in the last 25 years, 
There's been an effort all over the world to impact the weather synthetically through chemical spraying of the upper atmospheres, which has impacted and altered weather. Now, I know that Weatherbell does not get into this, but I hope, and I'm saying this because I hope at some point, Weatherbell will look at it, even though you won't be able to do the predictions because some of the weather is impacted synthetically, even if a lot of it is organic. That will be where the X factor is. There will be some aspects that if you're in the organic weather realm, you'll be able to predict very close to what's happening or spot on a lot of times. But if it's synthetic weather, that's the X factor of the whole process. Do you know well, what I mean? It, it, it is that, and uh, we don't know very much about how much uh, we're affecting the, the high atmosphere with intentionally or unintentionally with uh, jet aircraft and high-flying aircraft and, and the like. Uh, we do know that man does have an, an effect on, on the local climate at the ground level with our urbanization as our population went from 1.5 to almost 7 billion people on the planet since 1900, uh, that certainly makes a difference in, in and around our urban centers. Heat is built up, accumulated, and uh, that affects the, the temperatures that we measure um, and uh, the energy we use, certainly in the summer, uh, but uh, it may actually help reduce the energy we use in the, in, in the winter uh, in cold weather patterns. But that's that's very real. These these local factors. The uh, global warmists want to tell us that uh, our burning of fossil fuels is another synthetic way in which we modify the the climate in a major way and they use computer models and theories uh, to uh, predict how that change will will uh, take place as we go forward they like to look 50 to 100 years out based on that and project how much the warming that, that they think will take place will affect the melting of the Greenland and Antarctic ice shields and the rising of sea levels. That's where they they try to scare us into uh, controlling our use of fossil fuels and burning of fossil fuels and energy. But uh, there's uh, very little correlation, very poor correlation, over the last hundred years with increasing CO2 and temperature rise. The history, and you go back millions of years has been that the earth has had much uh, longer periods of time with much higher car, uh, carbon dioxide levels and that the carbon dioxide tends to follow not lead the temperature in other words the temperature warms and then the carbon dioxide increases the temperature cools and then the carbon dioxide diminishes and not the other way around as there trying to tell us that uh, is the case now. And they used the, the uh, ice cores from Antarctica, which they processed and, and, and found using that, that CO2 was very, very constant for many, many 
millennia up until the uh, 1900s when it began to to rise, and they attributed that to demand. But actual fact that those ice cores are were contaminated. That there are other scientists who say that the data, the old data before 1900, 19 even 1950. Uh, can't be trusted in the ice cores because those cores partially melted, and as soon as you you start melting the ice, uh, any uh, pockets of air that was contained in the ice, is, and that's where they measure the whole levels of CO2. The when there's liquid water, the carbon dioxide quickly goes into co- into the water, and concentrations are shown to be on on. Uh, inaccurately low as a result of that so that you can't trust the the old data from the ice cores but it was convenient because it showed that um, it, the earth was a constant you know uh, in a constant state up until man started burning fossil fuels so it it, it uh, told their story very nicely there were many Direct observations of CO2 going back to 1800, 90,000 direct observations all across Europe. And they showed a much more variable CO2 pattern that, that, that uh, peaked in the, 19, in the 1860s, 1850s, that dropped off again, peaked again in 1940s, dropped off, and then rose again as we warmed in the later part of... Uh, the 20th century, and those levels of CO2 uh, tracked the temperatures or followed the temperature rises. You know, Joe, I just want to tell you my bias on the fossil fuels. I'm really into the facts, and one of the things I appreciate is that you're willing to totally give us the facts and present the facts in context to us. I've learned so much from you and the other people that I've interviewed. However, there's one part of the fossil fuel equation that I'm not okay with, and that is separate from anything having to do with climate per se, which is that I just don't like polluting or high-risk dangerous technologies. It's just where I come from. I don't like the mercury put into the air. I don't like a lot of the contaminants that are put into the air, and I don't think we ultimately need to be doing it. But that doesn't mean that I'm not willing to look at the detail having to do with CO2 and learn the facts of how we evaluate that, what follows what. And so I can hear what you're saying. My issue having to do with fossil fuels is mostly having to do with pollution. Most people believe that CO2 is pollution. They look at pictures of power plant smokestacks and they'll see this effluent come out and it's it's really condensed water vapor. CO2 is an invisible gas. It's it's when you open your Coca-Cola bottle or or can and the fizz, the that's Coca, that's CO2 that's pumped into uh, carbonated beverages. Aren't we made of CO2 also? We're, yes, uh we breathe out 40,000 parts per million CO2 into air that has less than 400 parts per million. So we breathe out more than 100 times the concentration in, in our breath that's in the air outside. Um, the 
body is made up of uh, many different elements, but 18% of our human body is carbon. We're a carbon-based life form. The, right. the notion that that CO2 increasing at this level and, and higher is a danger to our health is is, uh, is nonsense because the as I said, we breathe out far more than that we find in the atmosphere. It's not harmful in the classroom where your children uh, are, are uh, learning every day. Levels of 1,500 to 2,000 parts per million uh, are, are not uncommon. That's five to eight times what we find in, in the air outside in the playground. Uh, and that's true in most uh, meeting areas, auditoriums, and workplaces. In cities, it's do- at least double what the ambient levels are, the atmospheric levels are in the uh, rural areas. And also it's food for plant life. Sure. So why do you think that the EPA registered it as a toxin? To be able to control uh, CO2 gives it a, a control over our use of uh, fossil fuels and pushes the green agenda, which is to push us toward uh, no carbon, wind and solar and um, hydro, although that is not in favor in most you know, green groups, uh, tied uh, technologies. They want to uh, take uh, coal and, and uh, fossil fuel power plants out of the equation. They're certainly opposed to nuclear, uh, worried about the dangers there. Do you think that's justified on the nuclear part? Well, I, I think that the Japanese... Uh, Fukushima? Major, yes. Major uh, problem has scared the world. It certainly scared uh, Germany, who had stopped their, their big plans for nuclear just because of that. But uh, Japan is uh, right on the... Ring of Fire, the the, uh, the tectonic ring around the Pacific, that's where the plates, the tectonic plates, come together and push against each other, and earthquakes and volcanoes are found, are most common. So I, I, it's not a good idea to place a nuclear power plant on on a fault zone or on an area that's uh, subject to major earthquakes because that that can cause some some issues now they i'm glad you're saying that i'm really glad you're saying that because sometimes when there are people that are for the use of nuclear power i haven't heard them say something like that so i appreciate that you're saying that because i thought that their nuclear power plants were not mindfully placed or secured i wouldn't put it on the san andreas fault in california right right uh it wouldn't be advisable but uh in, in other places and parts of the country that are stable, uh, they are they're very safe as, as constructed today, and no uh, emissions whatsoever. Very efficient, and uh, in the modern nuclear technology, there's not a lot of waste to, to dispose of. But uh, carbon, the uh, natural gas is another very clean burning. Uh, fossil fuel, in this case fossil fuel, that uh, can be used, and, and we we have found a huge supplies of it in in, in the uh, shale that exists in the ground. The ways to 
get get at it that natural gas and uh but uh we're going to need it uh the wind and solar can be supplements but wherever they've been tried in Europe they have shown to not deliver when power when needed most in the winter when it was very cold uh less than 0.4% of the electric power in Great Britain was met with their wind uh and they are building coal and uh, other fossil fuel plants to supplement to provide the energy the cost of energy also goes way up when you have to subsidize these inefficient energy sources that the so-called green sources like wind and and solar. I have to tell you, I consider myself a green. (laughs) My last name is Greenhouse. And I too fell in love with solar and wind. I fell in love, I think, with the idea of it and the hope of it, right? But when you look at the instability of the sun, when you look at the sun's activities, we can't really count on solar full-time. And we can't count on wind full-time, and I think you're right. We have to have something more integral as the mainstay. The the wind and solar are um, supplements, as I said, and I've always been a fan of solar myself, but I always thought of it nice to have panels on the roof to help with uh, building, you know, heating the water that we use to shower and, and wash dishes and clothes with and uh, reducing as a, as a result our, en- our energy bills. Um, wind is very inefficient. It uh, doesn't blow all the time, and very often when it's the coldest or the warmest, it doesn't blow at all, and you have to maintain some other source of energy so that there aren't brownouts and blackouts and those situations. And They found that in Europe. They, they haven't been able to close a single... A fossil fuel plant in in Spain, Denmark, Germany, UK, when they put up their wind farms and their solar farms, because the sun at most shines half a day and the wind is on and off. And when the wind dies down, they have to have another energy source. So they keep these these coal fired plants in in a ready backup mode. That, by the way, is much less efficient than when they're pumping, you know, at full throttle, and and so uh, the the uh, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere actually has gone up in those countries, uh, thirty to fifty percent. Is that really correct? Yes, for sure, verifiable. Yes, those those are uh, uh, studies were done in in Denmark and, and Germany. Uh, the CO2 levels rose with the alternatives. Uh, jobs were lost because for every green job that they created uh, for building the wind and uh, turbines and uh, solar uh, arrays, uh, they lost uh, 2.2 jobs in Spain, 3.4 jobs in Italy, and I think it's over four in the UK. And why is that? And it's a similar numbers in Germany. Uh, why is that? Because when the cost of energies go go way up, industry says, I, I can't make a profit here. I'm going to move my plant to China or India where they don't have those restrictions. And so a lot of uh, uh, heavy industry 
steel making and uh, manufacturing left these countries and relocated to uh, places where they didn't have restrictions, they were able to make uh, greater profits. But that meant a lot of people in these countries lost their jobs. And and that's, uh, you know, they, they've learned from that, and they're running away from wind and solar. Uh, energy costs have, have, have skyrocketed in all of those countries because they had to subsidize these inefficient green technologies, and that costs money. So uh, prices have gone up 50%, 70% in, in terms of uh, uh you know, heating and cooling uh, energy costs um, in places like Wales, the the number of people that are in energy poverty has skyrocketed. Twenty six percent of the people in, in Wales uh, are in energy poverty. It means that they they can't afford to pay their uh, energy bills, or they have to make a decision as to whether to heat or eat. And the many stories about the old pensioners. In, in the UK, when these cold winters came, the last three or four years have been uh, forced in their homes with their thermostats at 50 degrees to spend all day and, and night with their winter coats on um, because they can't afford to pay for the uh, high cost of energy. And that that's that's because the you know, the green uh, push has been uh, a failure, and we we should not. Follow that. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't uh, use solar where it makes sense. Maybe in the desert southwest and and wind uh, in some areas of the country uh, makes some some sense as a supplement. Uh, but uh, we should uh, take advantage of of the clean natural gas and uh, and oil that uh, it's in the ground. Uh, and even coal, uh, they, we do have the technology to, to uh, for clean uh, conversion of coal to, to gas, natural gas, and or uh, oil. I heard, and again, I'm not an expert and I don't know. I want to qualify that. I heard that the whole use of the term clean coal is a farce. Is it a farce in your view or not? I don't think it's a farce. I believe okay. that there is, uh, the technology is proven. There are uh Clean coal plants in in Montana, I believe, and also North Dakota, and they they converted to um, uh, they can convert it to natural gas and and, and burn it. Um, most of the coal fired plants have scrubbers and other you know clean uh, devices that uh, that clean the air, much as our cars. Uh, I remember the it wasn't that many decades ago where you used to say you drive your car and you get behind a, a bus or a uh, even a school bus or a Terrible truck. fumes. Oh, terrible fumes. And you'd be choking and you couldn't wait to pass them. And you had all of these old clunkers on the road, uh, you know, burning oil and, and other, uh, and, and, you know, spewing out their, the, uh, their pollutant, pollutants in, into, the, into the air. And uh, we've controlled a lot of that, uh, catalytic converters and, and other uh, clean burning, you know, and engines that, uh, and and most states require inspections. So that you know, if you don't meet standards, the car either has to be fixed or junked, and that's really helped. So our air is actually a lot cleaner than it was in uh, a few 
decades ago in terms of these other pollutants, which I agree with you. I don't, I'm not for pollution, real pollution. I, um, I have asthma, so I don't do well in, in dirty air. But um, we don't have the problems we had before. And particulates, too, were another, uh, uh, when you can see it, it's, it's a particulate matter. So it, I remember going to India 27 years ago, and I kid you not, the dirt and soot in the air was so bad, I was so violently sick with an infection within days of breathing in the air in Bombay. I couldn't believe it. I was so ill. And that was then. So I know that if we don't get a handle on this for all nations, developing nations and otherwise, it, it does make a difference. But you know where I think it's really going for energy? I think if it's allowed, I preface this with allowed and empowered. I think we're going to get to a point where we are using magnetics to power everything. If we become an enlightened world, we will take advantage of the great power of magnetics. In the meantime, until that transition is allowed and empowered to happen, we are going to be doing what you're suggesting while others of us who are so resistant in the ideology but may not be willing to get into the details will still be pushing to have solar and wind as the mainstay of energy. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is you talked about the ring of fire where Japan is. What do you think of the New Madrid faults? Do we have nuclear power plants there? Do you think it's going to erupt? What's your take on it, Joe? I think eventually it will. It's it's happened in the past. One of one of the worst earthquakes in, in recorded history occurred there. I don't know the situation relative to nuclear power. I surely hope there's not one near there, but uh, that's an area that's uh, very vulnerable as well. What would you say to the people living there? Well, I think they, like the people along the East Coast and Gulf of Mexico, that need to think really hard about what their plans ought to be if a hurricane threatens and people in, who live in tornado-prone areas have must have a, a plan when tornadoes threaten. Uh, people in, in that region ought to know, um, you know, what, what they can do. Um, it will probably come with little warning. Although sometimes these uh, earthquakes uh, give you uh, this seismic activity starts showing up and as uh, frequent small, uh, you know, uh, earthquakes, and they may get some some warning that uh, major uh, will take place. And we we see that with volcanoes too. We often get seismic uh, signals and. We can see, sometimes see a thermal hotspot from satellite before there is a major volcanic eruption. So Do the volcanic eruptions around the world worry you in any way? Uh, well, if we're indeed, as we believe, in a cyclical pattern and we are now moving toward a, a period where the sun will, will be unusually quiet and the ocean's the Pacific has already turned cold. The Atlantic will be turning cold within a decade, perhaps less. And if we get a major eruption, a major eruption like uh, Tambora, 
uh, occurred in Indonesia back in 1816-1815 time frame that that could really accelerate a, a cooling. We're already seeing cooling over the last decade. People that's probably a shock to some people, but uh, global temperatures have not risen since 1998 and since in the last 10 years, even as measured by the Hadley Center in the UK, which is the center used by the UN uh, to track climate change, temperatures globally have declined slightly in 10 years. In the United States, our average winter temperature has declined 4.13 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 10 years. That's rather significant. And if indeed we get a major eruption like that, the cooling which has started, and we're seeing it in winter, you know, terrible winters they've had in northern Europe and and the United States, uh, will become even more severe and even the summers will will be significantly affected. Uh, we had in 2009 the coldest July in history in, in the central United States. You had a miserable summer last year in, the, in California in the coastal areas. It was hot in the east, but it was very cold in, in the west. I think it, the summer, July and August, will be uh, will be cold again in in the Midwest, even though they've had a little bit of heat heat in June, uh, we think that July and August will be will be uh, chilly again. In the year 1816, followed that major volcanic eruption, Tambora, it was called the year without a summer, because in, all around the world there was frost and, and uh, cold, even snow, even in the summer months. And uh, so... Uh, that was a, a very similar period in terms of the sun. It was called a Dalton minimum. The sun went very quiet, like it has done in the last decade. And the sun has behaved in the last four decades very much like it did in the late 1700s and early 1800s. It's sort of a prelude to the Dalton minimum and, and the year without a summer. So if we get a major eruption, uh, that just could accelerate. We've had some high-latitude eruptions in, in Alaska, Redoubt and Kastuchi in Iceland in the last couple of years. Um, we had one in Russia, Saryachev. All of these high-latitude eruptions help build up the cold air masses in, in winter that make it so cold in mid-latitudes. And that's been the case the last three years. I've read a lot of articles about such tremendous cold in China in Russia and in other areas of Europe, that animals died off, that food supply became scarce, that crops died. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how the weather is affecting agriculture. That's one of the areas that we look at on Weather Belt. We try to use our our knowledge of global weather patterns and the historical perspective of global weather patterns to predict the weather for major agricultural regions to predict the the weather for energy needs. Uh, we knew it was going to be a brutal winter in Western Europe, especially early in the winter last year and the year before, and uh, in the eastern United States, northern United States this year. We had predicted that 
uh, the year before would be cold um, across all of Europe and Asia, which it was. The winter, whole winter would be, and that had a tremendous impact on on helping the cause energy prices to rise. And we had a, a very cold winter in the United States in 2009 and 10 as well. Uh, but in the summer of 2010, we, we knew it was going to be very hot and uh, that that was going to have a major effect in the United States on energy usage, and certainly that, that was the case. That's a classic uh, La Nina uh, following an El Nino win- uh, winter. And that happened in 1988, 99, 95, 66, 55 years in which uh, were, were very warm. In the, in the summer months, so we, we had seen that. And and now we, we're in our second year of La Nina that's typically cooler in the central United States, and that's the basis of our forecast. But to come back to your question about how it affects agriculture, of course, when you when you know what the weather patterns are going to be, where the jet streams are going to dip and where they're going to rise, and you you know what areas are most subject to, to drought, flood, freezes. Uh, so we... Uh, for example, uh, this year we warned before the winter that the southern plains of the United States would have a significant drought that would extend east to Florida that would affect the winter wheat crop in a big way. And it's the third worst drought in Texas, the winter and spring drought, uh, in history behind only 1918 and 1956. And so the winter wheat crop has been significantly hurt by that uh, drought. And uh, that may affect some of the summer crops. So that's not a major summer crop area, but they grow uh, wheat in the western plains. Uh, And and we knew that was going to be a problem area. We knew that France was going to have some problems this year. What kind? uh, That it was going to be dry in France, and that was going to affect the winter grains. And that's certainly been the case. We said that weeks before it made the news, and now they're very concerned about 30% drop in, in crop yields from France. So you're doing more than giving predictions based in the United States. How did you know about France? Well, the same patterns that are analogs, are uh, correlations to the past, uh, that work in the United States, those they work globally. So when we know it's it's what's going to happen in the United States. Uh, we can, in those same years, use that information to say, well, look at that. Uh, it was very dry in France. Um, it was normally wet in India, so they had to have a good monsoon there. That's one of the big growing areas. That the, the drought in China is going to end with uh, decent rainfall uh, in the summer. That's good. Yeah, that's, the, that's the kind of thing that we've been able to predict. Uh, in the last few years, there's been research uh, that said high-latitude volcanoes cause a very erratic monsoon in India. And so when we had uh, eruptions in 2008 and 9, we said, well, India, you, you may get your monsoon on schedule, but then it may take a break and it could be some issues. And that's exactly what happened. And um, we, we gave... We gave our clients and those people that are um, involved in trading agricultural commodities a 
are very interested in getting a heads up on on major problem areas like that. We also look in the southern hemisphere with a fair amount of success. We saw the Australian drought, which is the Argentina drought that was associated with uh, low solar in 2008 and nine, and that affected the crops there. The same time you have a drought there, you usually get very, very wet in central Brazil in the Sao Paulo area where they grow uh, sugar cane, uh, oranges. It's the number one producer of orange juice and coffee. We said that could affect all of those, but especially sugar cane. And sugar cane was severely affected a couple of years ago, and sugar ran to 27-year highs. Um, it, it even went higher this this year uh, for problems in, in other areas. India was also affected, as I said, by the monsoon. That's in, the number two sugar company country is uh, producing country is India. Number one is Brazil. So uh, knowing that and knowing what was going going to happen, we can give uh, people who trade in the market a heads up on on uh, on sugar being a good investment. We told uh, people that the wheat was going to run to very high levels, and indeed it did. But we also have been warning for the last few years about the corn, uh, partly because of the use of heavy use of corn and ethanol, which is, is, we think is a mistake. But um, I do too. Uh, but also because of the late planting that we saw in 2008, 2009, and again this year. Uh, they, they had, uh, up until a week ago, only 19% of the corn planted in Ohio. And we're, we're way behind the the, the normal um, for for planting. And the later you get the plant in the ground, the less the, uh, the yield is likely to be. And the more vulnerable you are at the other end of the growing season to an early frost. So uh, that doesn't mean that... Uh, you can't have a decent crop if the weather cooperates, you know, and we don't get an early frost, but it, the chances are diminished. And today the USDA came out with their report, and they cut back on their forecasts of of uh, production, of ending stocks at the lowest level in a number of many years, and um, since 2006 and seven at least, and some people believe at least that in the uh, market, that it could be more like 17 years uh, since it's been this, uh, this bad. I noticed that you do take what's going on with the sun seriously. Unlike many of the people who look and evaluate climate and weather, I appreciate that you actually are taking the sun into the equation for weather and climate. And I think it's a big deal. Do you like Jim Wett, do you take in or do you plan to take in any information about any other planetary bodies and their effect on weather and climate maybe in the future? You know, Jim Wett was, uh, what he had to say was sort of astrology up until the last year or two. A lot of people say, the planets, come on, give me a break. Uh, but uh, they're finding more and more that the the sun's activity relates a lot to the larger planets and their position in space relative to the center of mass of the solar system. And it causes increased gravitational forces that causes changes in the, in the magnetic uh, field on the sun, and that's that's where the sunspots 
you know, live. So they believe that the, the Jupiter and Saturn, the big planets, are play the, the most significant role in that. Jim also thinks the other planets, even Mercury, and uh, can have a significant effect on on the weather. It's shorter term, and they haven't looked at that, but. They're starting to make the connection and use those those factors to predict uh, uh, a number of, of major solar observatories and solar scientists have used those factors to predict that this, this last cycle was going to be uh, a dud, that, that the solar minimum was going to be very long. Indeed, it was. We've had over 820 sunspotless days, this solar minimum. That's more than double the the average and, and uh, three or times or four times the number of the last four or five cycles, the last 50 years. So uh, this was a very significant, quiet, long solar minimum. And they're using the the, the planets to predict that, uh, indeed, for the next couple of decades, we, we should see a quiet sun. So Jim has been ahead of his time, and he uses it to predict uh, daily weather. They haven't gone that far, but they're, at least they're starting to recognize that the planets may play a role in the sun. The sun is playing a role in the climate. It's interesting. That's really a whole system's perspective. What do you think about Yellowstone and that supervolcano, which is obviously changing, and it's one of the supervolcanoes in the world? Do you have a concern about it? Do you? Oh, yes. Talk to us about what your take is on this. Well, eventually... Uh, the last eruption was was huge, and it dwarfed any of the eruptions I mentioned. History of man, uh, it it was uh, it would have a major catastrophic effect on climate and long lasting too. Most of these volcanoes are are short lived, have an effect that that uh, usually fades out after two or three four years. Pinatubo in ninety one and El Chacon in eighty two. Um, I was St. Helens 81, that time frame, they lasted about three or four years, a cooling of the earth. But a major eruption like that could have much uh, more substantial effect. Wouldn't it put us into an ice age? If you're heading into that direction anyway, and, you know, we're 10,500 years into this uh, interglacial period, and most of them last uh, 10 to 12,000 years, so we're coming to the end of our uh, in a warm period, um, that something like that could kick you with all these other factors, uh, the sun and the oceans moving that direction anyway, into a, a more significant cooling and perhaps a major glaciation. That's something to worry about, not you know a 1.7 millimeter rise in sea level in a year. There's a site that says that researchers report the supervolcano underneath the state of Wyoming has been rising at a record rate since 2004 and that its floor has gone up three inches per year for the last three years, indicating the fastest rate since records began in 1923. Kind of scary. Weather and industry, let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, most industry needs weather information. They have computers that help them decide where to supply what if their chains, their large chains like Walmart's or Sears. Yeah, the, the, where to, 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 in the stores, what part of the countries uh, needs to have uh, uh, above normal number of 
of air conditioners or uh, what areas are going to be extremely cold so that we can be sure we really stock up on on winter clothes, um, snowmobiles, snow uh, throwers or blowers, uh, shovels, and so forth. And we, with the our ability to predict the, the weather, uh, we can benefit um, industry. We we told Lowe's, for example, two years ago that last year was going to be a brutally hot summer all through the east, and that, but this summer is going to be uh, much cooler. It may start a little bit warm, but uh, it will be cooler, more like 2008 than, than 2010. And they can use that in their decision-making. Most of them have supply chain management software that they use that looks at the economy, that looks at last year's store sales, um, that looks at you know local population changes, and uh, the overall economic numbers, you know how well people are doing on unemployment and, and so forth. But weather is also a factor that they need to, to uh, factor in. We worked with Pep Boys about eight years ago and looked at all of their products and found nine or ten of the products were very significantly correlated with with weather. And some of it is very obvious. Um, the uh, windshield wiper fluid is uh, heavily correlated with uh, snowfall in winter. Obviously, in, as you keep having to clean your windshield from the salt and spray from the car in front of you, you're more likely to have to go and get replacement, you know, uh, bottles of, of any antifreeze of, and um, windshield wiper, antifreeze uh, fluid. And uh, so that's one item. And uh, so knowing that uh, it will be a very snowy winter in Pittsburgh and it will start early, um, they can... Uh, you know, make sure that their stock is is greater. Also, uh, knowing when when it might occur in the shorter term that, that there's, there's no snow this week, but next week we're going to have three or four snowy days and maybe a major snow. So then they start planning. Uh, instead of having the windshield wiper fluids in the back of the store, they may put a kiosk up near where you check out. And and put them and snows and ice scrapers, you know, in in on uh, display. So somebody went came into the store to buy something else, um, and on their way out said, "Oh yes, I'm going to need that," and uh, that increases sales. But uh, so we, we we work with industry. I work with a, a ski, multiple ski area uh, management group. They had Whistler Mountain in. British Columbia, one of the areas in Colorado. They had one in Snowshoe in, in West Virginia, some in New England and Southern Canada. And we we gave them a forecast in 2002 and three that it was going to be extremely cold El Nino. And at that time, there was a misconception that El Ninos were warm and, and, uh, and snowless. But in the, we knew that since the Pacific had turned cold that that's that was going to change um and they used our forecast of cold and snow in the east but warm and snowless in the west 
and made decisions. In Whistler Mountain, they moved their venue for snowboarding from their lower elevation. They moved it up 1,500 meters up on a mountain higher up. And where the a few rainstorms that come in were more likely to bring snow, and they were the only ski area in that, that part of the country that had snowboarding. That's wild. So, uh, and they were able to advertise the same thing. And in, in, uh, we said that snowshoe right up to the northern parts of uh, New England and to southern Canada would be very, very cold. That uh, there'd be a lot of snow. And they said, "Well, gee, when." people come to the ski areas, we don't make our money from the lift tickets. We make it from people coming into the stores. Uh, we like the, the fellow said, we like to turn them upside down and shake, shake, shake them and all the money out of their pockets when they get there. That's how we'll make our money. Our margins are better that way. And uh, so they stocked up on, on gloves and, and, and mittens and, and warm hats and even extra, you know, parkers. Uh, they had kiosks of hot coffee, more from set up all around the ski resorts in the in the area. And indeed, when it turned out to be very cold, very snowy, the people came to the ski area and said, boy, I didn't realize it was going to be this cold. It's not this cold down in, in the city. And, you know, they buy an extra scarf or a sweater or, or gloves, warmer gloves or uh, and then certainly more from a drinking hot coffee or hot cocoa, or uh, and they did did very well. He said, you know, you, you probably made a million dollars for us with that that forecast last year. That's profound. Now, for sixteen dollars and ninety nine cents per month, we can be part of the subscription at weatherbell dot com. Right, and you'll get for that you'll get our daily blogs. We'll spend some time talking about unusual weather that's going on. And uh, some look ahead uh, to what's up, upcoming. Uh, industry, commercial, agricultural, weather traders, energy and ag, uh, they probably will want the more advanced uh, commercial where we get into the, the nuts and bolts. And the, How much is that? that uh, it, it varies, and it, it's, he'll have to, they'll have to go and uh, talk to our salesperson, but there are different levels of service. Uh, it's, t- it's tiered there, depending on whether they just want a weekly, the weekly and a monthly. They want the daily. They want to be able to consult with Joe or myself and uh, and ask questions. I would imagine agricultural traders would be very interested and find this very integral to their work. It is uh, important to their work. Some of them that believe that they can trade simply using technical behavior of the market, but and, and indeed you can, but you usually wind up losing uh, the first day or so of a move because, uh, say, the price of, of uh, corn has been dropping, and uh, the technical analysis that you do say it's very bearish and it's likely to continue to drop. But we see a factor that's going to cause it to turn around and, and rise, and it may take a day or so before they it crosses some uh, running average, moving average line that gives them a signal to buy, and they may move miss a move of twenty or thirty cents in the in the commodity before they say, "Ah, now we've got a buy signal." And so, but our uh, people that that use the weather will 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 
will jump on that and take advantage and, and benefit from that, you know, initial move. I'll see it first. So I have a tough question for you. Yes, ma'am. Do you like the shorting of a stock? Do you think that that's ethical and do you think it should be legal? I think a lot of people have made a lot of money by shorting the market. And some of these are very large players that, that manipulate the market. And I, I'm not in favor of, of that behavior. The markets were, were, had a purpose. The hedging was originally designed to help a farmer hedge against the possible negative impact of weather or insects or disease on, a, on his crop and invest some money in, in the market and if things turned against them or the, the you know the global factors uh, caused the market price to really collapse uh, or, or, or rise, um, uh, collapses when they were most concerned, obviously, um, that uh, he, he could recover uh, some of what he, he'd lose in, in terms of selling his uh, crop um, in the market investment that he made. But... Uh, now it became a speculative uh, game for many people, and many people in the market, most people in the market, have no intention of of uh, taking delivery on on uh, on soybeans or <laughs> or corn or natural gas or heating oil. They, they want to play it for a few days, make some money, and then move on to something else. And uh, in terms of the stocks, uh, it's the same kind of thing that. Uh, um, they they can play if they if they believe that the um, the commodity is going to rise they, they play it long but uh, shorting is uh, a belief that the the uh, the stock will price will go lower and that uh, you can uh, make a lot of money from from that uh, short. I get that the behavior of manipulating markets is not okay with you, but I guess my more clear question is, do you at this point think it's okay to be empowered to short a stock or a commodity, et cetera, in order to make money? I said it was a tough question. Well, you know, that we, we advise our clients when we think the market is oversold and over... Um, overbought and, and, and too high, too pricey, because we think that that uh, the supply will be better, the weather is going to improve, whatever, and they they take advantage of that um, that forecast. And, I mean, I, I think that's, that's perfectly okay. Are uh, you in the market yourself? No, we're not. We do not trade in the, in the market ourselves. Have you ever wanted to? I have in the past traded a little bit, but dabbled a little bit. Um, it, you need to be fully involved, and and uh, otherwise it's gambling, it's not right? Like a, it's not like a a four hundred one k or IRA where you can be in a, in a, in a fund and and just hope that in the long term, it, you know the the down are overcompensated by the up years and and benefit from a long-term investment. And, and the commodities, you almost and almost have to be watching almost minute to minute, 
even traveling for a day is is a little risky because things can happen very fast. I have a question about weatherbell.com as well. Are you planning or is your team planning to put the different countries down and what kind of commodities are there that are being impacted by weather or would you be willing to do that? We do that. We Every week when I do my weekly uh, summary and I do my monthly each each month, we talk about all the countries. Uh, we show maps of where the crops are grown in those countries and our forecast of weather in those those regions. That's great. I think that would be very, very helpful. One other question. Let me preface it by saying that when the railroads were asked what business they were in, they saw themselves to be in the railroad business. So when other forms of transportation became available, they weren't really receptive. They were railroad oriented because that was their perception of the business they were in. So they didn't see themselves in the transportation business. So my question to you is, what business are you in? We're in the information uh, business, and high-value information. Um, we prov- provide what is missing in, in many of their uh, decision-making in, in all of our, in our markets, is that the insight into what's going to happen uh, going forward in times, uh, they need to make the right decisions about uh, how much to stock of of a of a good, uh, how to prepare for services uh, in the case of ag and and energy uh, trading to understand where the the future issues are going to be um in, in the around the globe and factor that into the decision making in their and their trading strategies it's a real pleasure to have you on the show joe and i want to thank you for being our guest today ladies and gentlemen we have been talking with learning from and listening to joe deleo he is the founder of IceCap.us. He's one of the partners and meteorologist of Weatherbell, which you should all go to at www.weatherbell.com and sign up. Thank you so much for your time and your dedication. Thank you.